Ellen Rappaport is the creator, executive producer, and showrunner of the breakout hit comedy series Minx for HBO Max. The series takes place in 1970s Los Angeles and follows the story of an earnest young feminist who joins forces with a low-rent publisher to create the first erotic magazine for women. Executive produced by Paul Feig and starring Ophelia Lovibond, Jake Johnson, and Lennon Parham, among others, the series became an instant hit for its clever writing, evocative imagery, and its championship of feminist ideals from the 70s era, and Minx was recently renewed for a second season. Previously, Ellen co-wrote the screenplay for Paramount's feature, Clifford the Big Red Dog, as well as Netflix's Desperados. Enjoy the interview. Ellen Rappaport, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. It's me. So on the surface, your show, Minx, is a story about feminism meets pornography, but it really brings in a lot of other worlds like suburban housewives, the mob, country club politics, this whole world and time in the 70s. What drew you to the time and the characters? Well, what drew me to the time really was the real story of these magazines, Playgirl, Viva, Foxy Lady, all the magazines that existed in this period. So it was a natural outgrowth trying to tell a story that was inspired by, to some extent, real life events. And, you know, when I started developing this, what struck me about the 70s in particular is just how similar it was to our time. It seemed like the magazines were covering all the same issues that we're now talking about. Obviously, we all saw with the leaked decision in Roe versus Wade, you know, just how close we are to that time period and how how far we haven't come, I guess. You must be reflecting a lot as you are making, because I don't know the whole gestation of Minx. It's, it's kind of frightening times. What is also interesting, I think, is that once you bring, in a strange way, I hadn't reflected on it, but once you bring nudity and sex into the room, you can really talk about not just, you know, women's reproductive rights, but a lot of other related things like workers' rights and a number of issues. So you really explore so many things. And How did it liberate you? I think that I'm not sure that what do you mean by how did it liberate me specifically or the show or the, the process? Oh, I just mean it. it brought in a lot of things that I didn't think I expected to have in a show that is themed as like, you know, mm -hmm. magazine pornography meets feminism. But then there's these other issues so that you could almost delve into any of them right. once they were in the room. Yeah, I mean, I think that just that's just a natural outgrowth of the world that these people are in. And I love this idea of this kind of privileged, wealthy, white feminist entering a world where people didn't grow up the way that she did, didn't grow up with the same assumptions, kind of that the world would work in a certain way. The reality of it is like the mom really was involved in the distribution of porn magazines. So it ended up being this opportunity to take this character into all sorts of different worlds and kind of questioning her own assumptions. We start with the pitch in the, episode one. How closely did that resemble your pitch for Minx? The pitch was pretty similar. Doug and Joyce, I think, were fully formed. I believe I pitched out that first scene in the convention center or some version of it. So I think that relationship was always there. It was baked into the premise. And I think a lot of the stuff that I pitched ended up in the show, you know, I always envisioned Shelley as someone who was a little bit older than Joyce and had been brought up in almost a different decade, even though they were sisters, they felt like they'd been raised in two different time periods. I always had the idea that she would be going and working for the magazine at some point and would be just better at everything than Joyce was. 
much to Joyce's chagrin and embarrassment that her housewife sister was kind of better at being in this business than she was. Obviously, a lot of stuff came out once we got into the writer's room and sort of truly fleshed them out. And we had the actors involved and saw what they could do and, you know, who had chemistry with who. But it was pretty similar. Well, it was also interesting for me because we've been doing some interviews with business managers and, you know, they speak in jargon, right? And always after I have one of these conversations, I'm not even sure what they've said. <laughs> you know, no, it's interesting. And I know that they, maybe they intentionally speak vaguely, but I found that there were so many object lessons in building teams that really sh- mm-hmm. you know, showed us what that's like. Yeah, absolutely. And I do feel like there's always a phrase of the year when you're out pitching something where everyone says the same thing. A couple of years ago, everyone would be like, what's this character's superpower? And I was like, okay, so that's the one. And the year before, I was like, we're looking for noisy ideas. Like, there's always something. There's always some jargon that everyone is drawn to. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I thought that that was an interesting part of it, is of women, you know, being allowed to kind of be the boss to a certain extent for the first time and all the things that she would have to learn. And, you know, she is no longer just on her own creating something by herself. It's a, a collaboration. And it, it felt very true to life that she would have to learn those lessons along the way. As you reflect on feminism today and your own feminism, how does it sit within the story that you've told? I mean, I would say I'm much more of a Doug than I am a Joyce at this point. You know, I think that there's a lot of different ways to be a feminist. I think Joyce's is much more academic, at least in the beginning without any real world experience. And it's just kind of divorced from the practicalities of life. I think I would consider myself not a second wave feminist, especially in terms of my views on pornography and sex work and women's sexuality. I think that really was the chasm that divided feminists in the late 70s. And I think I'm trying to do that with Joyce, kind of show her journey from maybe being judgmental or wanting to protect these women to realizing that that's like a valid form of commerce and expression. We had a conversation recently, it was about BDSM, and I hadn't really thought about it, but as you portray this world, uh, magazine pornography, there are rules. Maybe there's some people that are fast and loose, but they seem like there are rules. So a level of consent and these things, there's not a lot of confusion around that. And it's interesting. Others might have a different perception when they haven't entered those worlds. Well, I think we, I mean, we wanted Doug to be not a cliche. We didn't want him to be Bob Guccione, you know, just who got into the business to have sex with models. You know, we always thought it would be more interesting for him to be a capitalist and to be a businessman. And I think that if you are that person, you run your business like a business and it's good for you to have rules in place. You know, it's similar to the way that we use intimacy coordinators. Like, I think some people don't like them. I love it. I think it's wonderful just to have, it's a business like any other. Tell us how they, they work, the intimacy coordinators. Intimacy coordinators, they're kind of like the representative of the actor on set. They have a conversation before, whether there's nudity or some sort of sex act involved. They have a conversation with the actors before anyone gets to set to kind of find out what they're comfortable doing, to talk through the scene. And once they're there, they're on set, they 
are there to make sure nobody is uncomfortable or being pushed to do something that they don't want to do. And these scenes are pretty choreographed. So everyone knows what's going to be on camera, what's going to be shown. And I find it incredibly helpful. I, I don't know when intimacy coordinators, when that role was created. It was pretty recently, actually, surprisingly. So yeah, I think it was only been in the last few years. And, and tell me the casting process, how you chose this whole team, the cast, the actors, yeah. and, and also the creative team behind the scene. Well, we were pretty lucky to a certain extent in that we were able to hire most of the people, or we at least were able to read with most of the people before the pandemic started when things were in person. So I actually had the opportunity to do a session with Ophelia Levy-Bond, who plays Joyce. And it was incredibly helpful to be able to sit there with her and do eight different takes and see how easily she was able to adjust the performance. And I felt like she really understood the character. And once we had her, really for that part, in my mind, it was always hers. And we were looking for someone who we could bring to the network because they like to see two options. And ultimately we only brought her in because we really couldn't find anyone who was close. And Idara, who plays Tina and Jessica, who plays Bambi and Oscar, who plays Richie, were all able to read with our casting, with our casting directors, which is just so helpful because they're able to guide them. So even though we are seeing it on tape, they're able to steer their performance to what they know we want. I think with Zoom, and we're with, with, with self-tape, it's kind of just a crapshoot. People just making things up as they go along. And Lennon, Parham as well. So all of those people came in before the pandemic started. So they were all kind of on our radar. And Jessica Lowe I had worked with before. And, and the director, Rachel Lee Goldenberg, had worked with her before. So we knew what she could do. And we knew how funny she was. And she's also a very talented improviser. And Michael Angrano and Jude Johnson were both, were both people we made offers to. And, you know, we had a creative conversation beforehand just to make sure that we were on the same page and we were, and it, you know, couldn't work out. I love the, the whole palette and the feel with the music. And I don't know in terms of that, how active you are in selecting the soundtrack or working on that. Well, very. So we hired a wonderful music supervisor, Bree, Brienne Rose, and she we talked about it beforehand and she kind of came in with these ideas about finding and she said that in the 70s around this time you know every record label had one girl you know it was like their token woman and so there were so many of these independent female artists floating around who either had to make their own labels or who just were undiscovered though should have been so she was able to find so many female artists who recorded music that sounded like the hits of the 70s sounded like it should have been a hit and wasn't a hit because they just didn't have the access or the opportunity. They were just, they were very, very strong musical choices, I thought, in part because they hadn't been forced to compromise their sound in any way by the men controlling the music industry. They hadn't been Svengali by the men. So we were able to find so much great music. And then, so Brienne finds it and I'm like, this is great. <laughs> That's my job. Yeah, no, it really sets us back in that time. It makes me also nostalgic about 
although that's not a world that I know exactly, but it makes me nostalgic about a number of things you don't think about, like magazine publishing just generally and the future of journalism. Wow, you could make money out of a magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's something that we really wanted to highlight in our production design and our set deck. And it was a conversation I had with our production designer, Jeff Stage, before we started about how analog everything was. You know, this was a time when people would cut things out with an exacto knife and put them on the boards. And if you wanted to change something, like you physically had to remove it and everything was glue and you could feel it. You could see the magazine all around you. It was just the exact opposite of digital publishing. And so I wanted to create this kind of nostalgic, almost romantic feeling of building something by hand. They're physically taking out pages of a half a million copies. Yeah. Which you could press, you could do it in half a second now. Yeah, you could do it in half a second. Yeah, we actually had a long, so many conversations about that number. And then we actually decided they could do it in about a week. You're just like ripping it out carelessly with the number of people that they had. But we sat there and we calculated, we're like, could they do it? They could. Yeah, it would be a lot easier now. I don't know your whole writing history because you're also involved in rewrites. Just tell us how you came up because I know you started off as a lawyer. I started off as a lawyer. I got permission to write a screenplay, a courtroom drama, instead of my legal thesis in my third year of law school. And that was kind of the way I started writing. I did a very bad job on it, although I did get an A because what did they know? (laughs) But it was just a serious courtroom drama. It's just not really my sensibility. And then I just started writing when I was a lawyer. I sold my first screenplay. I ended up leaving my job, moving out here. And then have been working ever since. Just a lot of different stuff, features, TV, rewrites. Maybe talk about some of them and what you learned in that process. I think each project has different things to recommend, you know, or in terms of a, a learning curve. I think, to be honest, I think I was a little bit like the character of Joyce when I got here because I feel like I was this smart person, but not necessarily someone who had been exposed to a creative industry. I think that I was writing things that were well-structured, but didn't necessarily have enough emotion in them. So I think that was one thing that I just had to learn. I mean, just kind of every project has been different, but I think my, I would say my takeaways, at least from like the last few years, is that I think that casting is just incredibly important. I think the right actors can give a project a soul and elevate it in a way that the wrong actors just can't. And it's one of those things that you can't force no matter how much you like somebody. Our casting director, she she at one point said after we saw someone who was so good, but so incredibly wrong, it was like, you can't tell it your way into a part. You know, even though you might be like an incredible actor, it just might not be right for you. I think that's incredibly important. And I think that As I kind of did a lot of different stuff, I think I found the tone that I like to work in, which I feel like makes us a good example of. I guess the best way to put it is it's like an idea if executed poorly could be really bad. And I think, you know, that to me, it's really the part of what makes the show work is that it could be awful, but because we took like a big idea and put a grounded tone on it, I think that is kind of the, the, the secret sauce of that show. And obviously great casting and still so mysterious how you communicate it to all these parties to have the same vision. Also, 
though you had a very you know strong vision of it, how did it veer away from your original vision, maybe to become something even greater? I think it just kind of solidified as we got more pieces in place. We were always saying the cornbread world should feel aspirational and it should feel good. And at the end of this pilot, we should be rooting for a smart, educated young woman to enter into a life of pornography. I think people just came in and they had ideas that I was like, oh, I've never thought of that, but that's exactly right. That so, you know, I think when our production designer, when we sat down and we had our first talk before he was even tired, you know, he had really thought deeply about what kind of car everyone would be driving, what kind of building Doug would be. And it wasn't the look, it was the story behind it. It was, if you notice, you know, I don't know if anyone notices this, but connoisseurs of 70s furniture and 60s furniture, but everything she has in her apartment is like a very nice piece of furniture that's 10 years old because it was a hand-me-down from a wealthy mother. So her car is like an expensive car, but it's a mom's car and it's old. Like all the furniture, it isn't new. There's nothing current about it. And that, that spoke to me um, about her. It was it said something about her. It said that she hadn't quite escaped her upbringing and formed her own identity yet. And then I would use costume design as another example of it, that Beth Morgan, our costume designer, she just came in and had this so many thoughts about how each character would present themselves and what this person was thinking when they picked out that outfit and why they chose to wear it um, at that particular time. And I guess that that's another lesson. I feel like we just hired people who were on the same page as us. And so it wasn't like we had to get everyone on the same page. It was that they were there already. They saw it the same way that, that we did. Um, same with our director, Rachel Lee Goldenberg. The references, the movie references and the TV references that she was using they were just so smart. I remember in her presentation, she had Tom Hanks from A League of Their Own as the model for Doug, which feels not what you would expect. And I think that she immediately tapped into his decency, which is surprising, I think, for somebody in that position. And she just knew, don't be too sleazy. I actually should ask you about your research process. I know you didn't closely model it off of any one particular magazine, but how many did you speak to in terms of editors or people involved in those magazines? No one. I didn't talk to them. I felt like it was weird because all the Playgirl people were still alive. I, I'd read a few interviews with them and I'm like, you know, I don't want these voices in my head because I don't think these are pure characters in the way that we are. I think that they're just very different from the characters that we created. So I read a lot of stuff about it, but I just didn't want those voices kind of in my head, coloring what I felt like was the best version of this for TV. It's definitely not a biopic or a bio series, whatever those are called. Yeah, it's almost like an ideal magazine environment, of a pornography environment, as I imagined. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, feeling very real. And I could understand the burden of then being totally realistic. There's a lot of heart in Doug and it's really surprising. And I'm excited to see how he evolves because they're both teaching each other in a kind of strange symbiotic mentorship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think Doug has a bit of an unsolvable problem, which is that 
he does want respect and respectability, but he has a chip on his shoulder that will probably prevent him from ever getting it. He is his own worst enemy, I think, in many ways. So I don't know exactly what happens with Doug in season two, but I'm also excited to see it (laughs) or to write it against. I don't know if you had a particular, you're talking about mentors or learning, you know, as as you came to to LA, did you have not exactly a Doug or a Shelly in your life, but who were some of these people who taught you? I I wish I had a Doug or a Shelly in my life. I don't feel like I've had a mentor. I would like one. Do you know anyone? <laughs> That's sort of what our project is about. We were looking for you to give mentorship. Yeah, I guess so. There might be in some other fields, but I think you're too far along. <laughs> I'm too far along. It's over. I've missed my opportunity. Yeah, I always wanted a mentor. It always seemed like a wonderful relationship. Yeah, it's. I guess you have to choose them carefully. And and it's also very interesting. I wanted to do it. <laughs> no well, offer well, I'm sure. And I always feel in some strange way because you're in these projects, they're very intense in terms of time, that there is a lot of mentorship that you have, but it's not maybe one mentor, but it's a group of mentors, as I understand it. I don't know. I think I was too obstinate to listen to anyone, probably. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I think I just had to sort of learn from my own. I just prefer, I guess, to learn from my own mistakes and experience. I think that's the best way to kind of figure something out is jump in with both feet, see what happens. Hi, my name is Erica Messix and I'm an aspiring screenwriter studying English at the University of Pennsylvania. It's an honor to be working on this podcast, which features guest Ellen Rappaport, the showrunner of HBO Max's latest hit, Minx. Now, while studying English and creative writing, I've always been drawn to feminist icons and authors in English literature. Through my research and my own interpretations, I have recognized common themes in the history of feminism, one being the power of female sexuality and sexual liberation. After watching the pilot of Minx, I realized that this show is another outlet that represents the power of women to be unapologetically sexual and how sexual liberation is fundamental to the feminist movement. Minx takes on the porn industry in the 1970s, and at first impression, you think it has a lot of problems, and it does. Because porn was made by, marketed for, and consumed solely by men, and this caused a distorted depiction of the female body. However, Minx introduced the concept of the female gaze, as our main character, Joyce, ends up creating a magazine of naked men for female enjoyment. This is especially empowering as it recognizes the sexuality of women and that women also enjoy sex. It tells us that women are allowed to enjoy sexual things instead of being victim to them. It is also important to note that Joyce, the main character, is a young woman passionate about women's rights and freedom from the patriarchy, but has to make do with the outlets that she has because the world isn't quite ready for that conversation. That still seems to hold true today. And while thinking about the show, I can't help but compare the then and now of feminism. And as Ellen Rappaport said earlier in this interview, it says a lot about how far we haven't come. Minx presents the porn industry as a choice that some people choose to engage in. It provides a space for people to own their bodies and use them as they wish. Bodily autonomy is a human right, yet that is still an aspect of freedom that is in jeopardy today, given the leaked Supreme Court plan to overturn Roe v. Wade. 
Overall, Rappaport has written a show that takes on historical and modern complexities in a humorous and entertaining way, and I highly recommend you watch his show. Now, let's get back to the interview. How you structure and you select your writer's room. Maybe it's not mentorship, but there's an interplay. So what was important to get in that room? I, I think that I tried to find a variety of different voices. I'm really excited about the room that we have for season two in particular, because I, I think that we have people who do very different things. You know, we have an executive producer, Ben Carlin, who's been on the show since season one, who is just an incredibly experienced, thoughtful, hilarious comedy veteran. You know, we have people who are on their first jobs. And I think it's really nice to have fresh voices and people come in with different perspectives. I tried, I'm trying to have a room that is balanced and racially, by gender, by age. And, you know, people just do different things. Like some people bring in a lot of ideas. Some people are the best at sitting down and figuring out how to make those ideas work. Some people have, you know, an incredible knowledge of feminism. Some people know a lot about publishing and it's always a bit of a crapshoot, but I think if you get the right mix, it turns out okay. And I never really understood it completely, but the co-authorship of scripts or when one turns in a script, maybe only 20 or 30, that might be a good percentage of a script that might remain, maybe it's different for your room. It's not, no, I think writing is a team sport. TV writing is definitely a team sport and the pilot I did on my own I didn't have a room at that point but for everything after we as a group figured out the arc of the season all the episodes and then we would sit down and together really beat out all the beats of an episode to the point that by the time we sent somebody off to outline it it was probably already a very messy six to ten page document someone would I'm in, do the outline, we would all keep notes, we would get that approved, and then that writer would go off and write a first draft. But then as a group, we would sit down and rewrite it together. So it's very much a team effort. I think it just depends. Some people's scripts needed a minimum of work. Some people's scripts, we started over. And, you know, there's like three lines of dialogue that remain. And I think that's just the way it goes. And that's fine. That's the process in, in a TV show, especially in a comedy. I think they really want the benefit of a lot of different minds on it. And someone said this to me, and it's a comedy, but I never, when something is complete and as a whole, I never start counting the jokes per minute. Do you have a certain number of beats and a certain number? That, do you do it that way? No. I don't think it's that kind of a show. I love those shows, but it's, it's just not that. Very much character driven. I know there's a whole, arc but we'll fast forward to like will we g get into the 80s or I'm actually not sure what exact year it is set in now we end season one I believe October ish of 1972 so we have a ways to go before we get to the 80s so you'll have to ask HBO Max if they want to do like a 12 season show and just order it right now but yeah the 80s were such an interesting time for a magazine like this I think most of them either went under or became gay publications. I think there was really a movement against pornography. And I think that women were encouraged to really tap into 
commerce and become working ladies with shoulder pads and the kind of sexual side of them was put away a bit in mass media. So there wasn't necessarily a home for a magazine like that. Because you seem, you seem very young. So you were a young person in the 70s. How, what is your relationship to it? The 70s? I mean, to be honest, it never occurred to me to do a 70s set show. I was not alive when the show was filmed. I, you know, I wouldn't have been in existence yet. But then, you know, I think that the best, to me at least, the best period pieces are the ones that are examined through a modern lens. I think if you did a show about what these 70s were actually like, you would want to kill yourself. Like, it, I mean, it really was a very sexist and racist time, but I don't know that a company like Doug's existed. I think it was just very different, but there were enough similarities to what we were going through that I felt like I was able to find the common thread in that period. So I, ha I don't really have a relationship to the 70s. You must have like, distantly, maybe through parents or something, you, you get. Well, my parents were Russian immigrants, so they weren't even really here in the 70s. And so their experience of that decade in communist Russia was pretty different, I think, than what was happening here. How do you feel that then your upbringing and the influenced uh, your views on these subjects from sexuality to feminism? I mean, I don't know that we're necessarily on the same page. You know, I think that's a different generation. I don't know that they've ever had any interest in sex work or pornography as a subject for entertainment. My mother was a doctor and one of the few female doctors in her hospital when I was growing up, but I just don't know that she wouldn't have called herself a feminist. I think in the 80s, it was kind of an ugly word. You didn't want to be branded that way. So I think that, if anything, I would be the polar opposite of how I grew up. And your father also in medicine? He's a doctor as well. And so the, the pressure to become a lawyer. I just don't think I knew that people had jobs where they wrote things. And I don't know that I thought of myself that way anyway. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest. Everyone worked in marketing or had a business or was a doctor or a lawyer in advertising. Like, I just didn't even know that that was something that people did. And I wasn't allowed to watch much TV growing up. It's interesting for someone who's not allowed to watch television growing up. And then you, so you, you're probably a little bit, uh, as you say, a little bit idealist and a little bit like Joyce, because when you come to it from the outside, you can be more analytical and just if you've not grown up, you can appreciate it. I don't know, like someone who's been starved of it. Maybe. I think I made up for it at a certain point and just watched everything. You know, I think if you deprive kids of something, they just want it more. For me, I don't view sex work with judgment. Obviously, I live in France. We're very liberated about that. But it's interesting to watch it in a show like this because I'm not the consumer of that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. I'm not a prude. I just... I like to have my own sex for me. I'm sorry, I'm being a big personal. I don't want yeah, other okay. I don't want other people to do it for me. So it's just like a voyeuristic pleasure. Anyway, your show isn't really about that. It's the magazine portrayal, but it informs me enough without feeling that I am supporting something that I don't enjoy personally. Well, it's also a very different kind of pornography than what we have now. It's just much more innocent. It's not video yet. I think that 
in my understanding in the early 70s, pornography was trying to be artistic to a certain extent. And now I think it's just a commercial venture. Yeah, a lot was left to the imagination. And if you look at some of these old magazines, I think it's almost, you think about it in relationship to maybe pornography today, which I don't really know, but I'm just hearing, is like Sunday Evening Post, what was that called? Or Norman Rockwell version, compared right. to what we have now. Yeah, I think that they brought in people and tried to light it well and make it look cool and get cool shots when they were doing video porn and um, the photographs. I mean, Anna Winter was the first art director of Viva Magazine, like they tried to make it look cool. They had so many amazing photographers shoot these images. So they were trying to elevate it and they were using it to make some, you know, a political statement about freedom and expression. And now I think in my understanding, porn does not operate that way. But maybe there's a market for it. I don't know. <laughs> That's another. I don't know if there's someone filling with that market. Uh, maybe something else could. <laughs> the commercial, Do it right on. <laughs> the commercial thing. Yeah, because I do think that there must be, well, in a very strange way, maybe some of that more quaint sexuality is in maybe television or in the art world. Uh, mm -hmm. Quaint is the wrong word, but arti artistic uh, celebration of the body. Yeah, I think that is where it is. I'm wondering about some of your artistic choices as you think of season two, which you've just been greenlit for. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're just starting the writer's room next week. So, you know, we have a, I have a sense of where I think it will go, but I don't think it's anything I can tell anyone about yet. I think that we've learned what the strengths of the show are and where it lives. I will say I don't want to reset the show and replicate the same conversation that Doug and Joyce have been having all season. I think some of this has been asked and answered and it's like a bit of reshuffling to what else can we glean from their relationships? What else will happen? And I think we've left some stuff open-ended. The, the Bambi and Shelley relationship, I think is an interesting one. Tina and Doug's situation is something we're gonna explore. So yeah, it's not gonna be, we're underdogs again. Let's see. I think they're in a different position than when we started. Yeah, there's a real shift in power and maybe it will turn back again. Are you involved in the editing process as well? As a showrunner, you're involved in every aspect. Yeah, deeply involved in editing. So it depends where we are in the season, but basically the editor does a cut, the director does a cut, and then we have our producer's cut which is just, we were able to do it in person for the series, not for the pilot, which is just a real trial and error process of sitting there and trying different things and reshaping things and musical choices and tweaking the performance. And we were just so lucky to have editors who really are storytellers in their own right and just really understood what the heart of the show was and what the emotion of the show was and were able to help us find those performances. We got really, really strong cuts in for people. We also had some incredible directors. So it's just such a relief to get a cut that is largely working. But yeah, you know, it's just, I love it. It's just like incremental progress every day. And it's like, it's story, it's still storytelling, but without having to write anything, which is nice. You're limited by what you have, which is incredible. But, but yeah, I've just been amazed at what you can do in editing. 
in the editing process, you only have the, the half an hour. So you've made these drastic decisions. Are you inspired from what you've learned from other mediums beyond television? I'm not sure that there's a one-to-one relationship between that. I think television is its own little beast. I'm not sure. I think it's just each episode is a different thing and you do only have half an hour. Hopefully you've shot something that's appropriate in length and you just get in there and it's really like, what's that quote about the sculptures? You just take the stone off until it appears. I guess editing is a little bit like that. It's a lot of losing things and not falling in love with specific lines or moments or scenes that aren't working. You just have to be willing to just lift wholesale things and throw them away. Thinking about the present moment, I don't know if you want to give an opinion about Roe versus Wade. <laughs> Obviously, I'm pro-abortion. I think that pro-choice. I think tell that in my show. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're in a terrifying time in the country. I'm just stunned, frankly, by the cruelty of it. I think women like me will always be able to get abortions, you know? And I think who it's hurting is low-income women. And I think that it is honestly an abomination. And it's really interesting that our country has no policies in place to help people who give birth without a real safety net. There's no such thing as universal daycare, something that was killed by the Nixon administration, I believe, in the 70s. So it's unfathomable that you are putting people in a position to have children that they're not ready to have and can't support and then not helping them. Does France have any room for me? <laughs> I'm going to get out of here. People, well, I think you're, you're, I think that you're so involved in your creative world. You Should we do Minks International though? Maybe Mink does an international edition in Paris and we all get to move to France. Well, it's an interesting subject because we come across some of our own issues. But yeah, it's interesting that here, the amount of inbaked, what you might call it sexism, but we just accept it. I know you need an intimacy coordinator for set because that's normal, but some of those things like, um, like the consent agreements that, mm-hmm. or I've never seen one. I've just heard about this and, and hear that people think it's very strange. <laughs> so I mean, we have nudity waivers and every square inch of someone's body is negotiated and it is incredibly clear, like what part of your body you are comfortable showing and what you're not comfortable showing. Oh, on set, that's pr- perfectly normal. I think in terms oh. of the dating world, these, these, <laughs> some of these things. And so we look at it at a distance thinking. Maybe it's necessary, but it just seems like anti-romance. I understand that point of view. I've been married a long time, so I'm not up on what's happening in the dating world. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely very different than when I was dating, the rules and restrictions. So you didn't speak to people who were making those magazines just to free up your imagination, but you maybe had conversations with people from that generation in terms of what their views on sex and intimacy are. And, and it's sometimes shocking because I had conversations with friends. They're just kind of ordinary people, but the level of acceptance, I have a friend, she has a dentist and she says, I was just talking about Roman Polanski and pretty much everyone's come to have opinion about Roman Polanski. And, uh, but she says, oh, that was normal. Everyone did it then. I think that. I think that in a certain community, probably a lot of people were doing what Roman Polanski did. You know, I did do a lot of research on second wave feminism 
I think that it was just a necessary part of feminism. That's what it needed to be at that time. But I think that I'm personally glad that it evolved and continues to evolve. And of course, there's many feminisms. And I don't know if you give yourself an exact third wave feminist or are we in the fourth wave now? I don't know where we are. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know where we are. I don't know that I necessarily have a label for myself. I just think I have the views that I have and I'm not really part of any movement or group. I think where our show succeeded in many ways is that we were able to satirize liberals as well as conservatives. I think the dinner party scene in 109 where Joyce meets her friend Maggie's Manhattan friends is like a great example of what I think is a problem with liberalism. People who don't really have an understanding of the communities that they, they say that they're trying to help. And so, yeah, I don't like to label my own beliefs specifically. You're an artist and you're giving us back a mirror of our society. Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. So as you think about the future and the challenges we face and feminisms and women's issues and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, what for you is the importance of the arts and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I think that what art does is hold up a mirror to what is happening. And I think that art is a form of persuasion and it's a way to get your point across often much more effectively than an argument or a lecture. And so I do think that we have this responsibility to, as we say, hold up a mirror to our shortcoming and try to improve the, the world that we're in. I think one thing that is somewhat comforting about spending so much time in the 70s is seeing how cyclical history is and that I think the 70s also had the late 60s in particular actually had this feeling of, of a lot of people who were scared of progress and a backlash progress. And that ultimately went away and then it came back and then it went away and then it came back. And I think that's kind of the period we're in. I think people are scared of the changes in the world and that's what we're seeing. And it does feel like it's not going to be forever, I'm hopeful. And that the tide will shift a little bit. That's what you do. You really open us up to the complexities. I'm hoping it'll settle a little. I want us to be able to embrace our sexuality as well as being correct and making sure everyone is respected. And so it really makes us think about this and all in a lighthearted, complex way. Mm -hmm. So thank you, Ellen Rappaport, for telling stories about women's lives, feminism, workers' rights, collaboration, and friendship with humor, grace, and complexity. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. It was so nice speaking to you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Erica Messix. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.